Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. Sometimes a people depart from their founding principles by steps, but after enough of those steps have been taken, it seems to prepare them for a giant leap of apostasy. The question is, can a nation recover its principles after such a leap? We begin with 2 Kings chapter 21. Usually I'll give some sort of a recap for this. I'm going to make my recap very short. First of all, just a recap of what we've seen before. Leading up to this was the, the reign of the great king Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a great king in Judah. And a king worthy of the name of the Lion of David. He is the first of the descendants of David. Now you think about this. There have been, we've gone uh, for over two centuries since David. All of the generations since then, all of the kings, some of them good, some of them bad. But Hezekiah is the first one who, of whom it is said that he was like his father David. Whose whole heart was given to the Lord. Now Hezekiah wasn't a perfect man. Who is? But he was better than anybody that they'd had since David had sat on the throne. As a leader, as a covenant leader, as the man who stood before God for all the Hezekiah was. What we get from the the message of Hezekiah, the life of Hezekiah, is that. Whatever the issue is here, everything that happens to Judah is not because of their size. It's not because they're easy to pick on. It's not because they're small. It's not because they're weak. Whoever, it's because whatever happens to them. When they win, it's not because they're strong. When they lose, it's not because they're weak. It's the Lord. And the Lord has shown through the life of Hezekiah. I can deliver you. I can deliver you from the most hopeless situation. And I will deliver you. If you believe in me. There's the message of Hezekiah. And remember the book, the whole book of Kings. We're in in the context of displaying and beginning to the Lord revealing to us some of the spiritual warfare that's going on which occasionally breaks out on earth in a wide open way but usually is hidden beneath the surface but all of what's going on there is a spiritual war because God has a plan and God has a design and it is focused at this point upon the promise of Abraham that he gave to Abraham and the promise that he gave to David and the fulcrum of all of this is the covenant of law and the blessings and the curses of the law. But all of this is to head toward Jesus Christ. Everything in this book is about Jesus Christ because he is the one. Everything is about him. Everything is pointing toward him. He is the 
hidden actor in everything going on here. One of the things about this is the significance of the temple. One of the, the most significant things about kings is the place of the temple in all of this. From the time that Solomon built it until this time. Remember the temple is the presence of God on earth. It is the display of the presence of God on earth. This is where and how God wants to be worshipped. By his own revelation. Why? Because the temple represents Jesus Christ. Second Kings chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. We're assuming that he began his reign with an overlapping time that he began with a co-regency with his father. Hezekiah understands at a certain time. God had given him a promise. God had healed him of a disease and he had given him 15 years. During the early part of that time, he led the nation through its stormiest period with the invasion of the Assyrians and the Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem and then leaving all of a sudden with a lot of dead ones behind. And all of the trial and went through that and Hezekiah led them through this time. But it was after that period, it was after that promise that God gave him that said you've got 15 years that he had a son. Manasseh. And Manasseh reigns, begins to reign at the age of 12. This is probably because Hezekiah, seeing his time grow short, says, I've got to start training this boy. He's got to know what's coming up. He's got to know what's coming up on the throne. So there is obviously a co-regency and then the death of Hezekiah. His mother's name was Hephzibah, verse 2, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the despicable practices of the nations whom the, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal. He made an Asherah, as Ahab, of king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of the Lord, which the Lord said to David and Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, when which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do all according to what I have commanded them, according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Manasseh was named after the patriarch of Israel, the son of Joseph, Manasseh. If you go back to Genesis, you see that when Joseph had that son, he had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Manasseh he named forgetfulness. That's what the name means, forgetfulness. 
because with the birth of this son, Joseph said, I have forgotten the sorrows that have brought me to this place in my life. He has made me forget my troubles. I don't think that when Hezekiah's son got the name Manasseh that his mother or father intended him, intended the meaning of his name to mean we're just going to forget all about the Lord. We're going to forget all about the way that he has delivered us. We're going to forget all about his commandments. We're going to forget all about his covenants. We're going to forget all about everything that he has done for us to bring us to this place so that we still, after all that we've been through, after everything that has happened, after all that we have done before him, he has forgiven us and he has delivered us. We're going to forget about that. We're going to forget about God. We're going to forget about the covenant. So, Manasseh, Manasseh is, you know, now there have been some stinkers of kings who have come, come and gone. And they've been through, and there have been some, there have been some pretty good ones. There have been some rotten ones. A lot of the rotten ones were in the northern kingdom of Israel. You had all the, Manasseh, the writer of Kings says Manasseh stands in a class by himself that makes him as bad as and even worse than Jeroboam the first. As bad as and even worse than Ahab. As bad as and even worse than Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, who almost brought the nation to ruin in his reign. What was so bad about Manasseh that makes him stand even in a deeper pit than these men? He did everything that they did of not only did he build an Asherah pole and put it in Jerusalem, which Ahaz did. He set it right in the temple, right before the altar of Yahweh. As if to say, in your face, God. He was the most openly blasphemous the most Ahaz was an open idolater who, who re, he redesigned the temple completely on his own so that it would fit the way he liked to do things so that he could coordinate things because he was, he was a great imitator of the Assyrian religion Manasseh has gone back to a pro-Assyrian policy the reason you can, say, you can see that is because uh, his adoption of the hosts of heaven that was an Assyrian thing so he worshipped the planets. He worshipped the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets. You know, this is, this is what... Astrology. It goes into that, but I mean, it was, it was much more of, a, of an idolatrous approach to that. Witchcraft. Oh yeah, witchcraft is involved. But I mean, it, it was just openly idolatrous, actually worshipping the... You know, you are a God. You are a goddess. You control our lives. You control our destinies. We worship you. We serve you. And combining that with the old, ancient old 
uh, Amorite and Canaanite practices, of the Baals and the Asherite poles. I mean, he's bringing it all together. Another phrase that's used that is unique of Manasseh in this account. He is the only... There's a phrase that's used of him that is used only also of Jeroboam the first. He led. Jeroboam the first led Israel astray. Manasseh leads. What does it say here? Does it say that? Led Israel astray. In other words... Because by he made them to worship this. He made them to go astray. He made it so. He set it up. Jeroboam's official policy was, if you're going to serve this, if you're going to be loyal to this house, you are going to worship my way. Manasseh went further than Ahaz. Ahaz set up idolatries. Manasseh instituted it and said, if you are going to, if you are going to be loyal to this kingdom, you are going to worship my way. To do it any other way is treason. And he made them, whether they wanted to or not, whether they liked it or not, whether they appreciated it or not, if they didn't worship his way, they were going to be outlawed. Same thing that Jeroboam did. You cross this border to worship back in that temple, you're an outlaw. And the same thing that he did, so also Manasseh did. If you're not going to worship my gods my way, then you are an outlaw. Moreover, he led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Back in the days of Abraham, God first told Abraham, this is the land I've given you. But you can't take it, you can't take possession of it just yet. Because the iniquity of the peoples who live here hasn't reached the overflow point yet. It's not, it's not full Give them time. They'll make it. I will increase you. I will make you a nation. When the time comes, I will be ready to send you in as my hand of judgment against them. But their time has not yet come. Do you realize what is being said by the writer of Kings here? Said the evil and the wickedness and the iniquity of the kingdom of Judah has now reached a point that it is greater. It has reached the overflow point of the Canaanites when God said, it's time. Now, all of the other things that you see in there, the details are highly significant, including the detail of bringing in child sacrifice and including also the detail that Manasseh shed much innocent blood. Matter of fact, that comes up in the word of prophecy. Look, and the Lord said by his servants, the prophets. Now he sent prophets. Notice that the writer of Kings does not name these prophets. But it says that they were plural. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more than all, the, all that the Amorites who did before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols... 
See, Solomon brought in idols, but he didn't make people serve them. Manasseh is requiring it. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Jeruda such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. It's a phrase that Jeremiah picks up. We shall see it. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. That's an image that is taken from the prophet Amos. We're in verse, coming up to verse 14 of chapter 21. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage. That should hit you right in the heart. I will forsake the remnant of my heritage. And I will give them to the hand of their enemies and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. Verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides the sin he had made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That innocent blood, of course, you've got the issue of child sacrifice that he has brought in, but also you've got uh, other things and the implication is the last time this phrase was used was used of Ahab and Ahab and Jezebel had embarked upon a program of persecuting the prophets and of annihilating the prophets of God, the prophets of Jehovah and this seems to indicate that the innocent blood that he had shed had a lot to do with prophets that he had killed because they were saying things that he did not want to be said According to ancient tradition, Isaiah was one of the first of those. The old, the aged Isaiah who had served his father, Hezekiah, so faithfully and so well through the days of the greatest crisis and had served as an intercessor in the days of the greatest crisis that Judah had ever faced. It is said that, Hezekiah, that Manasseh had pursued him, had hounded him, and that Isaiah took refuge in a hollow log and that when he was found, Manasseh ordered the log sawn in two, and that that is the way that Isaiah met his death. That is a tradition. It's not biblically founded, but it goes back a long way. So if you were a remnant who, who shared Hezekiah's love of God, Chances are. Chances you are. are an you are a target. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all he did, and you, you can, in this case, you can almost feel the disgust of the writer of Kings. Says, I don't even want to talk about this anymore. So the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the King of Judah? Manasseh slept with his fathers. That is a remarkable thing. He slept with his fathers. You realize Manasseh had the longest reign of any of the kings of Judah? The reign about 50 some odd years. See, that's one of those things that's taken as being a signal of God's pleasure. The things that we look at and see, this shows this person to be important, this person shows this person to be of substance, this shows this person to be righteous, ain't necessarily so. God's ways of judging things are different from man. Most of the time you see that the king 
was buried with his fathers. This guy was buried in the garden. Yeah. According to, there is an interesting thing, and we're, I'm not going to dwell on this, but the, the Chronicles account shows that late in his life, Manasseh did have, he, ex, he experienced a chastening and a period of repentance. Chronicles brings that out. That's in, that is integral to the message of the book of Chronicles, which we'll study another time message of kings the significance of Manasseh is not in his repentance but is in what he brought Judah to because the thing is the repentance of Manasseh was too little too late and he had a son Ammon let's just say Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulam. Two years, continuing the same policy. He was a rat. That's about all we want to get with, with Ammon. And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. And Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. The, only, the significant thing about Ammon is that uh, he was assassinated. That's the significant thing about him. He was assassinated in order to make way for his son Josiah at the age of eight. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah, the son of Boscath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. He, like Joash, began his reign as a child under the tutelage of others. And like Joash, when he came of age, he said, it's time to prepare the temple. And so in the 18th year, probably the temple was a wreck by now. The temple was close to looking like a ruin by, by now. It was, yeah. Am, am I wrong in making the assumption that what we have here is political backlash? Yeah. Yes. What, that, that's not wrong. What we've got, why did, here's, here's the thing. If we remember the great revival of Hezekiah, and there were things that took place, there are things in Chronicles that, that are related about Hezekiah's reign that kings didn't bother, including the, the reinstitution of a Passover and the, the first reunited Passover of the, uh, of the divided, since the kingdoms had divided. And so many things that had gone on. What happened? And I think you're right. I think there's a lot of backlash, both political backlash, there's social backlash, that, because Hezekiah went against a lot of the ingrained traditions of the people, including taking down the high places. It just seems like there was a small remnant that, okay, we're going to get rid of Ammon and put Josiah. That's right. Likewise, you've got, uh, when you've got Manasseh, Manasseh comes in. And why weren't there hordes of people who stood up against Manasseh and said, no, we will not go to those ways? Because the people really wanted to go back. One of the things that I saw in one of my earlier studies of Kings was that people kept getting the leaders that they wanted. They may not, wanted, they may not have wanted what they got, but they got what they wanted. You know that question. Honey, didn't... Uh, honey, you got what you wanted. Don't you want what you got? 
talking about the consequences that come from the choices that we make. And Hezekiah brought a time of deliverance and relief from that and revival and repentance, which lasted for a while. And then Hezekiah is gone and his son comes in and takes his place and says, forget all of that. It doesn't seem like a 12-year-old make that decision. He had to have some political backlash there. He had some political backlash. And you remember, you remember when Rehoboam took the throne. Who was it who backed Rehoboam and who, uh, who helped Rehoboam make all of these wonderful policy decisions that led to the to breaking of the kingdom? The people of his own generation. And so they're looking at these things and all of this is part of what's going on and we're only seeing this particular line of it. But this line is the one that's telling and that is, who's the king? And the king isn't going against the people. At the very, Amon goes again. Amon has, shows that Manasseh's policies had gone too far. There are some who are saying, we've got to get this back, and we've just got to get rid of this guy. And they're willing to go to the, to the point of assassinating the king in order to do it. And they put us, Josiah on the throne. And they've got Josiah, the eight-year-old boy. Now, of course, the eight-year-old boy is not going to be making policy decisions. People are going to stand in. For, he's going to be the figurehead for policies that are made by others. But those who are behind Josiah are godly people. Now, the, you know, it says here, too, that the people of the land killed the ones who killed King Amor. Yeah. So there were, there was like three fractions there, those that wanted to just and didn't go back to God, well, maybe, the, the point is, the conspirators who killed Amon, they did it for their own, we're not told why they killed, they may have done it for purely their own selfish political reasons, to get him out of the way so they could get, get somebody else, but whatever the reason was, the people aren't going to tolerate the assassination of their leader. Nobody is, even if they don't like him, they don't want their leader assassinated, unless, you know, he's Saddam Hussein, and then they, then they didn't want him to be assassinated. They wanted, you know, they wanted to bring him to trial. You know, all this. And that's not, forget all that. We're going. So Josiah comes to the throne, and he is backed by people who have a heart for, who are righteous. This remnant is revived, and he comes back. In the midst of re, of rebuilding the temple, and one of the things significant about this, back in the days of Joash, when they tried to remodel the temple and and restore it and bring it back into shape. They had money dedicated to that. The priest didn't handle it well. Well, the, so they had to put in a system of accounting for it. Josiah says, we're not going to go to that. I trust these guys. They're trustworthy. They're faithful. They're going to do the job right. And they did. And they went through. And in the process of doing that, they brought out an old scroll. And what takes place next is extremely telling. They bring out a scroll from the book of the law probably Deuteronomy. And in the process of reporting to the king all of the things that they had restored in the temple, they said, and we found this. We think you need to see this. And they read the book of Deuteronomy to Josiah. And it broke him. And for the first time, Josiah had this horror and he had this thought. This is where we are. Now this is telling in so many ways. One of the things, Josiah is the first of the kings that is named 
who has actually read the law. And the law of God has an impact on him. And it shakes him. And his heart was set to serve the Lord already, but if but at this point the law has stirred him up. God's law and his covenant has stirred him and said, We've got. I'm not doing enough. This isn't enough. And his reform hits high gear. And he sends, this is in chapter twenty two. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Achbor the son of Micaiah the son, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for all the people, and for the people and for Judah concerning the words of the book that have been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do all that is written concerning us. Now, here's the interesting thing about that statement. The wrath of the Lord is kindled against us. You know what was going on against Judah at this point? You know who the enemies of Judah were at this point? Nobody. Judah was at peace. Egypt was nowhere. Assyria was nowhere. Babylon was nowhere. Judah is at peace. Syria, uh, the Ammonites, the Moab, everybody's at peace with Judah. And Josiah looks at this and he is able to see in the word of God the anger of the Lord. Not in circumstances, but in the word. Josiah may be the most perceptive of all of the kings since David. To understand what's going on here. So he sends and they send to the prophetess, Huldah. Now there were other prophets. Jeremiah was practicing prophet in those days. And there were some other prophets. There, matter of fact, this was a rich age of prophecy that came about under Jeremiah. But he sends to Huldah. And I think, this, I think one of the part of the clue to this. I think Huldah may have been, I think her prayers, her intercessions, or her prophecy may have been behind the revival that was behind Josiah. I think she may have been the spiritual leader. In a, in a day when the prophets had been killed by Manasseh, a prophetess, a woman, gets by under the radar. Just like Deborah did back in the days of Judges. And I think Huldah is old, I think she may have remembered the days of Hezekiah. I don't know. I'm just kind of doing a little bit of my own imaginary profiling here, though. But I think Huldah is an old woman. I think, I think this woman is the spiritual root that has been left. Like Isaiah talked about, the, the root. As, he, as Isaiah spoke of the root of Jesse, even though the whole tree has been leveled there's still a root that sends forth a spring. I think Huldah is the root of prophecy that remains. And I think they sent back to Huldah because Huldah was the one who really was the, the spiritual anchor 
behind the revival that came to Josiah. So they sent to her. And they talked with her and she said to them, this is verse 15, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. How do you like that? Notice what she didn't say? Go tell the king. She's not talking to him as a man of... Now, she knows he's a man in authority, but she's not talking... She's talking to him as someone who's sent to her like anybody else would. I have a need. I'm praying to God. Would you find out what God's word says to me? He's sending to the spirit of the Lord. Because in this stage, the spirit of the Lord was in the prophets and the prophetesses. Go tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they've forsaken me. They've made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you, but to the king of Judah. Notice the switch there. To the king of Judah who sent you to acquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you've heard. Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord. When you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you've torn your clothes and wept before me. I have also heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers. And you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see. Oh, the disaster that I will bring on this place. And they brought back word to the king. Now, you're Josiah. What what does that do to you? God said, I've already, I've already got, I've already started the chain of events. It's already rolling. As a man who knows and a man of God, you, the judgment's coming. But because you're the leader of the people and you're going to lead them in the right way, I will give, it, give you some grace. <laughs> I'm going to show mercy to you. For your sake, the train is going to arrive late. But the train's rolling and it's not stopped. What does that do to you? You're Josiah. Then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah. All the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests. The prophets and all the people both small and great. And he brought them into Jerusalem and he read to them the same book that he read. (laughs) 
And he read in their hearing the book of the covenant that had been found before the Lord. And the king stood by the covenant that had been found. Notice there's something that's not shown, said here. And that is the response of the people to the reading. But in the days of Ezra, when the book of the law was read to the people that were gathered there, many of them wept. You don't see a brokenness in the people the same way. But the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul and to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book and all the people joined in the covenant. So he brings them back in. As Manasseh had led the people astray, Josiah is bringing them back in, leading them back in. And there is, and what proceeds to follow is a, they go out and they purge the place of the idolatry. They purge that kingdom of its idols, the high places, the altars, they break down. He goes further and more radically breaks down things than Hezekiah ever did. He is not taking God's word for granted. He is not saying like Hezekiah did, well, at least it's not going to happen in my generation. He is not doing like... He's not taking the word of mercy. Even this is the same word of mercy that God gave to Ahab. You humbled yourself before me. I won't, I won't do it. I won't take away all of this and do all that I've said in your lifetime. You won't have to see it all. He basically has given the same promise to Josiah. That he gave to wicked Ahab. But Josiah, tested by this, is going, if there can be anything done, he will do it. He is like Abraham praying for that last ten righteous in Sodom. Remember, Abraham is negotiating with God for the survival of Sodom. And said, God, what if you find ten righteous people? Will you, will you take the city for ten righteous people? And God tells Abraham, if I can find ten righteous, I will not destroy the city. And it's like Josiah is taking the point of Abraham. He is... He is is negotiating with God for that ten last righteous. God, what if there are? What if there are? What if there is any heart of righteousness left? And he is pursuing this with all of his heart. Josiah may be more wholehearted in his pursuit of God than his father David. Went the end of the story of Josiah. Verse 15, chapter 23, moreover, the altar at Bethel. He started going into Israel, started cleansing altars in Israel. Back, you know, even with these people that, and false priests that the Assyrians had brought in. And, and uh, Josiah is going in and purging that northern territory and bringing that back into the fold. And in the process of the place goes to Bethel. And the high places erected by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who made Israel ascend, that the altar with the high place he, bur- he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He burned the Asherah. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, and he set the, bone, the tombs, those were the tombs of the priests of, the, of Bethel. He took, sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them all, the altar, and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who predicted these things way back in the days when Jeroboam I set up those altars 300 years ago. 
And a prophet stood before him and said, all your bones are going to, these altars are going to be defiled. Your bones are going to be burned on them. 300 years later, God's word comes true as Josiah fulfills the word of that old prophet. Then he said, what monument is this that I see? He said, this is different from all the others. And the men of the city told him, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you've done against the altar of Bethel. He said, let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let those bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed the shrines also of the high places of the city of Samaria. He did to them according to all he had done at Bethel. All of these things. Then there was a Passover, a great Passover, even surpassing that that Hezekiah had led. Kings doesn't tell us about the Passover of Hezekiah. It tells us about the Passover of Josiah. The rest of the acts of Josiah, all that he did are not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him. It looked like Necho was going to join forces with the king of Assyria to rise up against Babylon, who is now the great power. Josiah said, not in my yard. You're not running through my yard. No, sir. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. It's a battle at Megiddo. Josiah falls in battle. I thought he was supposed to go to his grave in peace, in peace in that he didn't have, his eyes did not have to see the disaster that God was going to bring his kingdom in peace is that he got to be he got to return back to Jerusalem as a hero got to be a man who was mourned by godly people and the godly of that land had great reason to mourn and the people of that land took Jehoahaz the son of Josiah anointed him made him king of his father's place Jehoahaz, verse 32, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Pharaoh Necho didn't even like him. Took him captive. Pharaoh Necho, basically the Pharaoh of Egypt now comes in. Let me give you a real quick synopsis of what's getting ready to happen here. I'm not going to go through all of the grisly story. We're going to get more into this grisly story when we get into Jeremiah. What takes place here, though, is Necho puts his own, he puts Jehoiakim's, the brother of uh, Jehoaz, Eliakim. Eliakim means God is righteous. Changes his name to Jehoiakim. Why? Because you you, you people of Judah, you worship Yahweh, so we'll give you Yahweh's name. So he changes his name for it. So where it says not just God is righteous, but Yahweh is righteous, because y'all worship Yahweh, right? So Yahweh is righteous, so he puts him on the throne. He says, you do what I say, we're going to be just fine. Well, there's back and forth, so let me just go ahead and tell you, give you the short story. That doesn't work out. Jehoiakim comes, there's this back and forth, he rebels against Egypt, that doesn't work out, and then he's come, 
tries to resist Babylon, that doesn't work out, and then he rebels, you know, so, so there's a back and forth, there's going, basically during this period of time, Judah and Jerusalem becomes a dog, a bone that is quarreled over by two dogs, the big dog finally wins, Babylon. Babylon comes in, takes over, and Babylon is now ruled by a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. One of the great military and political geniuses of the ancient world, and of all time, really. Nebuchadnezzar didn't get beat, ever. He comes in and over a period of time takes Jehoiakim captive. No, he doesn't. He doesn't take his he kill, uh, Jehoiakim gets killed. Jehoiachin, his son, reigns in his place at 18, begins reigning at 18. He's overwhelmed. He's taken captive into Babylon. And Zedekiah, the cousin, is put, in, put on the throne in his place. And Zedekiah, we're going to find out more about Zedekiah when we get to Jeremiah. Wrong man at the wrong place at the wrong time. Weakest, one of the weakest characters in all of the scripture. Chapter 25 gives us the story, the terrible story of the fall and captivity of Judah and finally of Jerusalem. There are three different exile, stages of exile. Nebuchadnezzar comes in first time he takes out the brightest and best. Among these, this is a group of Daniel and his young friends that are taken and exported from, Babel, from Judea to Babylon. A few years later, it comes back and the next invasion of, of Judah takes out the leading people of the community, which devastates the land and increases the corruption that is left in Judah. And finally, this last time, he comes in he turns Jerusalem to rubble, completely destroys the temples, takes anyone that can actually be found to be taken captive, captive into Babylon. And the only people who are left are the people who hide in caves and so forth. And it's still not over. Now, all of this goes... We're just going to have to wait and see. If I, we're going to finish up this, and I'm going to make a significant point from all of this. Why? And we're going to answer the question. Why didn't Josiah's revival last? Why didn't it help? Why did the, why did the judgment not stop? Why didn't God not look at the sincerity and the purity of Josiah's heart and his and the revival that took place under him. Why did God not care? Why did that not change God's mind? That is a difficult question, but it's one that the scripture has an answer for, and we're going to look at it next week as we introduce Jeremiah. There's no question that the writer of Kings sees Josiah as being favored by God. 
How then could he have come to such a sudden end? It's almost like God didn't want him to have to deal with what was about to happen next. Until next time, you've been listening to Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for tuning in.